Oh, hi. Welcome to the City Love Podcast, Episode 5. The Young Architect is what I've entitled this one. I talked to a young architect. His name is Matt. Maybe he's not that young. He's probably late 20s. Uh, we have a great conversation about what, what is his life is like, what kind of stuff he designs. We have really great conversation about uh, energy and apartment buildings and the apartment boom that Portland has seen, but other cities are seeing as well, what it means for the city, what it feels like, what his job is like. And he really um, opens up, and it took a while because I had just met him that minute. He was recommended for the podcast from John, the producer. And, you know, it took a while for me to get to know him a little bit and vice versa. So I think that's actually pretty great that you as a listener get to experience that. This is how people get to know each other. They ask questions and they make mistakes and they, you know, tell their opinions and things like that. But overall, I thought it was really great. And I hope you enjoy it as well. If you love cities as much as I do, and if you love Portland as much as I do, or any city, wherever you live, uh, I think you will enjoy it. And especially the perspective of a guy that's making his way in the architecture world today. Enjoy. first of all i do want to give you major props for just showing up to john's basement today thanks because i know you you know you don't know me i don't know you i never met you before Mm -hmm. and you're going on a trust instinct that this will be worth it and i really appreciate that and i'm excited i kind of really like the challenge of of having a guest on the podcast that i don't know much about Hmm. except that you were recommended that we would have a good conversation about this stuff so um my guest today is Matt. Yeah. We're just going to leave it at that. He lives in Portland, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So we know two things about Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an architect. Is that number three? Uh, training, or on the path to being an architect. Oh, okay. So you're in grad school. Uh, finished undergraduate. Okay. Working in like an internship full-time thing. Architectural right intern, yeah. Oh, okay. Slash designer, slash drafter, because the title's a little bit... Well, you know, ambiguous. yeah, I hear you. Who's your favorite architect? Ah, uh, hmm. That's tough. I I don't think I could have one, but... <gasps> Matthew. Oh, um, I don't even know if you go by Matthew. Are you Matthew? Actually, that works. What's your uh, given name? My mother will say Matthew if she's angry. Okay. So that actually works. So the shock and awe I just had over... That response was appropriate. That was appropriate. Okay, cool. <laughs> that was right on, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think I have a favorite, but maybe, like, I appreciate many of them for their particular um, uh, special things they do or okay. their particular narcissism. Or Yes. Who you know, do you think is the most narcissistic architect? Uh, probably Frank Lloyd Wright. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I think like so. For sure. I mean, yeah, potentially murdered his family. That's you think he murdered his family? Yeah, have you heard that story? No, I do not. I do not believe that one. I think it was his, his second wife. Yeah, um, but he loved her. He loved her. They started a family. She and the family mysteriously died in a fire. Their home actually caught on fire, and they Tell exited the home 
and were met by an anonymous axe murderer. So no, it wasn't. An, it was their servant. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So to hear some now, I'm giving you information about me. This is yeah. fun. This is a. It's like a mystery. This is a mystery we're solving together, Matt and Pat. Um, I used to do tours for the Franklin Wright uh, Preservation Trust, is what it was called, in uh, Oak Park. Gotcha. And it was interesting giving tours because there would be two kinds of people. First of all, they were from all over the world, and I was so proud Mm. to showcase what Chicago had to offer. I was like, yeah, we got this guy. Mm -hmm. And the city of Oak Park, have you been there? No. Oh, it's amazing. It's like a sculpture garden that people live in. It's just the coolest. They preserve the whole neighborhood. It's it's fantastic. And his home and studio was the first thing to be preserved by architecture students in the late 70s mm-hmm. when it was just kind of a rundown apartment house. And uh, so when I would give tours, though, people would either be super interested in the personal life because he had a crazy personal life, or they would be super interested into his design and all the elements of design. Hmm. So I just absorbed all of that stuff. But, yeah, that's a crazy story. So he basically left his first wife for one of his client's wives right who was cheney and that was the lady that got murdered hmm. i believe at Taliesin yeah. when they came back from europe because they were like started such a um scandal when they got together that they mm-hmm. went to europe for a little bit came back but yeah that was their servant so that's uh but you're saying there's a theory that he he paid yeah, all that to happen there's a theory that 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 was him because uh he supposedly was supposed to be in like New York that evening, but there was no mm-hmm. confirmation that he had actually bought tickets or something. It's like a conspiracy theory, hmm. right? Yeah, I never heard that one. But um, it's interesting. Yeah, love my Frank Lloyd Wright though. Yeah, you know, I before I started uh, doing tours there, I didn't like Frank Lloyd Wright. I was like, he's overrated. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. You know, his buildings are kind of squishy and don't make a lot of sense. But then as I would study his stuff i was like no he was a total amazing genius and he believed in beauty and i think that was just like a driving force in all his designs and so all of his buildings tend to not only be beautiful themselves but they tend to make everything else around them more beautiful so Mm. yeah i'm a huge fan but yeah yeah most narcissistic yeah yeah probably mis vandro had to be up there too he had to be kind of yeah narcissistic as well yeah, well, to be like the world be- belongs there. in the big glass box, right? Yeah, but um, hmm. yeah, or maybe maybe Alvar Alto. Maybe that would be one of my oh, favorites. Okay, yeah. What I really like about him was the the humanist approach that he had, mm-hmm. like uh, his idea of um, designing for people at their worst, designing for the sick and people that are disturbed and that sort of thing yeah and uh i got to visit the mount angel library yeah i just did that too for the first time and that's that's phenomenal right yeah so that's the only overall alto building in oregon or just in the u.s i I think it's one of two in the u.s yeah yeah yeah. and it's in case anybody doesn't know mount angel is this like hilltop where there's a monastery and the library building was designed by alberto and it kind of is on top of this hilltop Mm-hmm. As I recall, it doesn't take advantage of the views that much. No, it's a very um, introverted building, and it's like the yeah. outside is very humble. You almost yeah, don't you know wanna, there's a library. You want to know why it's significant architecturally, unless somebody told you. Yeah, in the front exactly. But, but then when you go in, right, it's sort of like it's all like different levels. It kind of cascades down. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool. Different kind of curvy shapes. Yeah. So. So you do you like the the Alto Lounge in Portland? That's like one of my favorite bars. Oh, you know I haven't I haven't been, been there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Do they have like uh, reproductions of his furniture? I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know all that much about Alberto. I know like a bit, but mm. yeah, I think like the furniture in there is kind of his designs and stuff. Mm, cool. Kind of ultra modern. When you go to the bar there, there's somebody that's, like, playing a record, like, right next to the bartender. Mm. So it's, like, one of those kind of bars. Oh, wow. Where they're like, I know you haven't heard this before. That's why I'm playing it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> nice. Like Aretha Franklin's second cousin, Loretta's record, you know, stuff oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow. That sounds <laughs> yeah. really special. That's <laughs> yeah, kind of awesome. <laughs> so let's see. So how um, how do you like the architecture world so far? Um, I like it. I definitely like it a lot. Um, it's, of course, different than school. I personally don't get to do a lot of design, mm-hmm. um, but I think the uh, the variety of like things that I get exposed to is really interesting. Um, it doesn't feel... I, th- I think on average, I don't feel like I'm grinding. Um, and I've... I've had a lot of uh, like previous jobs where the, that was basically what you do. You show up and you do the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's really nice in that respect. And then I don't feel that as much. Um, and I'm only at like an intern level. So um, that's. I think that looks good. Or I'm, I'm hopeful that that'll continue. Hopefully. So but, they have uh, you just dra- do you do more than just drafting, or what else do you do? Um, it's basically drafting. It's um, yeah, it's like developing construction documents, helping the architects do that. Um, sometimes I get to do um, design um, or options. Um, get to design alternate alternate designs, yeah. yeah, and get to present those. Sometimes they're usually not like that exciting, but it might be like. Um, because uh, someone forgot to put a fire hydrant in that block, we have to put an FTC room three quarters of the way into the permitting process or something. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that was one of the ones I got to do. And that was uh, that was fun, actually. Uh, That's good. But uh, yeah, and then it's like picking up red lines, um, which is like a, you know the editing process, mm-hmm. um, performing revisions, which is like a, a nonstop thing. Uh, but I actually like that process a lot. It reminds me of um, reminds me of like music practicing or doing anything else that's sort of um, building something where you're just iterating and doing something over and over again. I really get into that, so I think that's fun. Yeah, if you're um, detail oriented, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's basically it. Yeah. And you said your firm does mostly multifamily stuff. Mm-hmm. So apartments is that mainly it? Yeah, it's mostly four to seven story. Well, actually, yeah, uh, if you count the roof, four to seven story apartments uh-huh. in Portland. In Portland, uh-huh. okay. Ground floor um, commercial. So they're typically doing the like the four over one formula. So mm-hmm. ground floor is concrete, and everything above is um, wood framing, typically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, did you grow up in Portland? No, I grew up in Southern Oregon. In Southern Oregon. And okay. I've been in Portland for um, about 10 years. 10 years, okay. Yeah. So when you when you see what's happening to Portland, how do you feel about it? Um, I, f- I know that I'm currently 
benefiting from the change in Portland mm-hmm. um, as far as like the opportunities I've had in being able to change jobs and get placed right out of college into something I was trying to do. That's been awesome. So um, as far as like what the privilege has afforded me, um, it's been good for me personally. Um, at the same time, it doesn't really feel like, I mean, Portland never really felt like Oregon, but it feels even less so like the rest of Oregon. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Like what, where are you from in Southern? Uh, Medford. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. and I don't think I've ever really explored Medford. I've driven past... Well, that's it. If you drive through it in the, on the I-5, oh, okay. <laughs> you, you did the tour. Yeah. But I've been through Grants Pass and, you know, and I, you know, lived in Eugene and went to the University of Oregon. There's an oldness to all those cities. Like, they kind of, they feel like throwbacks to, like, the 70s or something. Like, there's yeah. there's a lot of buildings that you're like, wow, I can't believe they have a building like that still, like, with that sign from 1960, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what, I, that's what I love about Oregon overall is, like, that's what I've noticed when I came here, I was like, wow, all these buildings are here that other cities lost decades ago. Yeah, that's true. So that was one of my exciting things. And small town Oregon is like that still. You can kind of see like like that. Yeah. There's not a lot of buildings more than three stories. Mm -hmm. um, Residential neighborhoods are typically two stories. So, um, so, I mean, do you think if, if the Portland neighborhoods, that are old and they're being replaced, redeveloped into this uh, five over one, four over one. Do you think the end result is going to be a city that's worth living in, or what's what do you th- do? You think that that's okay, or what do you feel like? Uh, well, it'll be worth living in for the people that can afford it, I think. Um, and uh, the, I mean, as as we get rid of more of the the residential. Um, like single-family homes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely going to change a lot of the nice things about Portland. Um, I remember Portland being described as the, the the city with a small town attitude or something, or it's like a small town yeah. and a bigger city. Yeah, I could see that for sure. It's never really been a big city, right, Portland? Um, um, you know, mid, mid-sized big mid-size, city. Mid-sized, yeah. So um, I think a lot of, like, what is attractive historically to Portland were like those neighborhoods mm-hmm. um, that were always affordable and being able to walk and get sunlight during the winter and not have mm-hmm. buildings blocking that out. It's not. It's yeah. not a New York. It's. It's also not a San Francisco um, as far as like cost and and hills and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, some people will benefit from it. Um, Sorry to answer your question super vaguely, but... Um. Well, no, I mean, I'm interested... Now I'm really interested in you because I can tell there's a conflict here. But that's that's cool because I think that's okay, and I want to give you permission, not mm. that I have any authority over anything at all. Sure. But I'm conflicted as well, and we've, we haven't done the podcast in a while, and I've been thinking to myself, I'm like, gosh, you know... And John is really great, and... Oh, you're not really having a mic on. But I wish I, yeah, I don't have another mic. You're in a, yeah, I don't like, um, yeah, I want you to, if you're going to talk, hmm. I want you to be able to talk properly. But. Shout into my, oh, sorry, to okay. Matt's microphone. But uh, John is always like, instead of being upset or, you know, being negative, why don't you be curious? And I think that that's the best advice ever. Hmm. And it's more of like, I do want to direct any of my interest in this subject, like in a curiosity fashion. Yeah. But. With that being said, if if I start if I see things and I'm like, oh, that 
that's a that's something that's been done before. It doesn't look like it's going to work, or I'm seeing things that are going to lead to other things. I want to be able to talk about them and not yeah. gloss over them because it's politically unpopular or something. So I'm kind of wrestling with that because I because mm. I know with certain people I know that are against the changes going on, they don't have anything good to say about anything. And it's like there are ben- the benefits of the boom is mm-hmm. jobs for sure. Mm-hmm. Is the city is becoming. Um, more like other big cities, like it's getting more diverse, it's getting more um, sophisticated. I don't want to know about sophisticated, yeah. but it's like it's just it's also getting big city problems like eternal traffic. And but um, my main gist is like I'm totally not anti development at all. I just think that it needs to be carefully done, especially with areas that are your assets. So I see the old neighborhoods as assets. Those are like what I call keystone neighborhoods. Like mm-hmm. they're the neighborhoods that inform all the other neighborhoods, and we have so much room to redevelop things that don't matter all that much, that aren't contributing to the keystone neighborhood quality. Or and I feel like those areas are being sort of not redeveloped, and we're redeveloping areas that we really can't afford to lose. So, yeah. And and the and then the the apartment buildings I see being built now. They're really not even putting commercial on the first floor. Like there's one mm-hmm. down the street where it's like the whole entire side of one block is the lobby of the building, the exercise room, the garbage room, the control room door, or a big garage door, you know, stuff like that that goes into the garage basement parking. And then there's a little unit on the side that's the live work or something. That's uh, that's sort of the commercial space. Oh, so okay. this is an interesting thing. That isn't a negative thing, you know, with what. And I'm not. I'm not. I hope I'm not coming across as saying no. I'm, I'm against what you do because I'm not. No, I'm just fine. against um, if we lose really great things, you know, yeah. to, to get to get to gain things that aren't that unique. If we're losing unique things to get things that aren't unique, that's a problem. But uh, those commercial spaces, it seems like they're hard to fill. Do you see that too? Like it seems like I I don't know like what's typical for spaces to fill like what that like typical or expected time frame is, but I know that there are buildings that I walk by on my commute every day, and mm-hmm. I've been thinking like, man, I've been doing this for a year and a half, and I haven't seen these places fill up at all. Yeah, right? like so, uh, especially on um, well, there's one on Burnside. It was probably like the first. Big giant building that they built. So on the Twelfth Avenue, yeah. across from the Rock. You know that one? That's actually yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. The, the London. London. Yeah. So this is okay. So you've been living here a long time. You've been living here about the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. Me, except I went to Eugene for a couple of years in between that. But that building to me is interesting because it's like it was the first big building, and I remember before it got built, it said "Coming Soon Senior Housing." Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's. Uh, I made that up in my head, but. Then it actually got built, and it was like just a regular apartment building. It's it's like six stories, but the first floor commercial has never been filled, and that hmm. thing is at least it's at least been done for five years, right? At least, at least, yeah. Because that was the first, and now there's hundreds of those buildings, right, everywhere. So that's uh, that's something that's fairly common, is or from what I've seen and I pieced together from the rumors of how projects have started. Um, for example, the OHSU development on the southwest waterfront, mm-hmm. right at the base of the the um, cable car. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. The air tram, actually. Uh-huh. So that whole development, aside from OHSU's buildings, but there's a series of um, of residential towers that are there. Oh yeah, yeah. I think around the park. Uh huh. Around the park, yeah. and 
I remember when those were going in, I heard that they were primarily affordable housing. Well, they were supposed to. I think they were supposed to have a certain percentage, like, you know. Yeah. I hear that a lot. So what seems to be typical is a lot of projects are started under affordable housing, and for whatever reason, they're able to transition later on in the phases of the project. So they're no longer affordable, which is um, that... Pretty sinister. That seems very sinister, Because it's it's basically using low-income people to make profits and to get approval. Mm-hmm. And so you say, oh, yeah, we're here. We're going to totally help poor people and minorities and, you know, add whoever else you want to. That sounds good. Yeah. And then, but they're kind of in it for the money. And, you know, it's pretty obvious to me. It's like, well, of course they're in it for the money. And there's, nothing, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Like, people should be making money. But it's sort of like... It's the balance, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, when I went to planning school and even before that, I was totally like, oh, yeah, we need to, like, build new neighborhoods that are all brand new and, uh, and uh, lots of density. I was totally an advocate for that. But then as these neighborhoods got built, you walk through them and they're just so sterile. It's like like that neighborhood in particular down there is pretty quiet. It's and quiet, they have right? hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units, but you're like, where is everybody? Yeah, I think they're you know. they're slowly filling up, but it's a very specific demographic, of course. Only the people that yeah. can afford to work there, and I think they'll they'll typically have um, an investment in just being next to OHSU. So you're going to see a lot of people working right. in healthcare, right? So yeah. it's sort of like the healthcare neighborhood in some ways. Uh, that's yeah. a good that's a good point. Also, what if it's just there's nothing to really walk to there? Like, so why would you walk? Yeah. If there's nothing to really look at, like there's a subway. I remember there was a subway, mm-hmm. and there's a little big burger, and there's a bank. The same with the North Pearl. So I live near the Pearl District, mm-hmm. and the North Pearl is an area that's recently developed. It's all brand-new skyscrapers for the most part. They mm-hmm. tore down all the other buildings. And all it is there is um, places to get your body waxed. I'm trying not to make a joke about all that. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, honestly, you walk through that neighborhood, it's like, it's like bank, investment place, place to get your genitals waxed mm-hmm. <laughs> bank it's mm-hmm. like the most boring place on earth and i'm that's sort of what made me think oh my god like this is never going to be an interesting place ever yeah you know i mean once things are done like that that's it but um not that they couldn't be done in a way like there's plenty of new buildings that um i think are really good you know that are interesting and allowing for things to happen yeah so I think it's interesting what you said earlier about um, wanting to protect, like, the Keystone neighborhoods. I think mm-hmm. that that in itself is just an interesting um, thought because uh, just the variety of ways that a neighborhood can be considered a Keystone neighborhood, right? Maybe Alberta right. was a Keystone neighborhood before 2014 because it mm-hmm. was the one of the cultural centers and music hubs of Portland and blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's been gentrified, and that's changed, so we don't really have that. But then you also, on the and that demographic was typically minorities and black families, from what, I've, from what I know. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's like the, the Laurelhurst neighborhood, right, which are like these little kind of mini mansions and these beautiful landscape lawns. And that neighborhood seems to be mostly still protected now. Uh, no, there's no protections on that neighborhood. 
Uh, yeah, but I don't see a lot of development in there. Maybe there is, but um, I think it. Yeah, you know, it's the economics of it. I think. Right. So. But um, they, well, what's happened? You know anything about the residential info project? Is that the the project that has to do with um, ADUs being built? Well, or in theory, I think that's how it got started. But it seems to me what's happened is it has transformed into this thing where it's the rezoning of the entire old east side oh, okay. to be multifamily, basically. So hmm. the incentive to tear down a five-bedroom, three-bath house in Laurelhurst mm-hmm. wasn't there. But once they rezone it, it will be. The So that, to me, is... Uh, a really, really, you know, and I don't know all the details, so I really have to learn more about it because it's very complicated. But to me, it seems like it's going to put gasoline on the fire of the redevelopment. So all the, you know, because the incentive will be there. You could take one house, even if it's worth a million dollars, let's say, and you could build four million dollar micro townhomes on that lot. Yeah. So then that's, there's the incentive right there. Sure. Now, whether you have to tear down, every, you, you'd have to tear down every single tree and every blade of grass to do it, but if it's allowed, it's allowed. Mm-hmm. So the question is, it seems to be that people are pretty passive, so they're like, oh, I guess things happen. But it's like, to me, that's a major loss because th- just like, you know, my other, j- my job right now, it's, I'm a park ranger. So it's like, it sounds like why the heck would a park ranger care about this stuff? But I really think my park ranger job informed me a bunch about this stuff because it was like, why should I care about the forest? Well, this is what a peak forest is. This is what an old growth forest offers that a forest that just got torn down doesn't offer. This is all the species it provides homes for, you know. And so there's the keystone species of the forest or of ecosystem. And I think in the human habitat ecosystem, the same thing applies. It's like you need the Alberta. Mm-hmm. With If you go to a city that has no place to go to see cool bars or bands, you're not going to have bands at all. Like, they're just musicians just won't really live there. I mean, now this is the, this is where my curiosity comes in. I might be totally wrong. Like, maybe they'll go play at big strip malls next to Fred Meyer if there's nowhere else to play. But to me, it seems like you need to create experiences for people. That's why people visit a town. That's why they spend tourist money there. That's why they want to live there. That's why they want to invest their company there. Oh, I love this town. Let me take my software company there. And so to me, these are like assets. Like they're not just things that you can cram people into, you know. And Alberta is kind of at the cusp right now, I think. Have you been up there lately? Um, Yeah. If they kind of controlled it, and not that they wouldn't allow development, because they did have a building that is brand new, that they took an old building's shell, Mm -hmm. and they sort of redid it, and then they added on top of it. And so it still offers what that old building offered, which was sort of uh, interesting little details of the old architecture. Mm Um. But it does seem like if they start to lose even more, it it just won't be the same place at all. You know, not even talking about the people that inhabited it and how that changed over, right, because the different demographics, but just as an experience for your eyes and your ears and your why you would want to go there. Why would you make a special effort to go somewhere like that if it just looks like everywhere else? Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. So that's my main concern about stuff like that. But... um and then, oh, let's talk about, so when I took Revit classes, um, when I took Revit, I was like, Revit makes it so easy to create big boxes. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Like, AutoCAD was different because AutoCAD was like, you're basically drafting mm-hmm. like you would normally draft with paper, but you're doing it on a computer. Mm-hmm. But Revit, like, creates this object, like, in real time, and it's like, holy shit, that's cool. Yeah, I mean... How do you feel about uh, that? 
personally, I don't, I don't use it as a design tool. And you're I, not at that process. You're like, you're like well, down the pipe a little bit. But even if I could, like if yeah. if I was the designer at the firm, I wouldn't be using right. Revit because I, I mean, I know that there are um, BIM managers that are completely uh, fluent in the program, and they might be able to go through a design process with it, but. I think it's it's way too stringent as software to to actually be able to design well in it, and so. That, but that's why I think so many buildings suck now, because it seems like they just extrude and. It's possible. It like, could be a sketch when you look thing. at the buildings, it's like all they did is take a box and extrude a little bit of it, two feet there, two feet there, two feet there, and then that's what they have, and it seems to have no reference point to history or to location or to anything architectural. It just seems to be self-referencing Revit. Yeah, it's really easy to take. Does that make sense? To take a box and execute a, a a modern, a romantically modern design and design it in in 3D software these days. It's it's not easy, but it's easier than doing something that's like a detail oriented, crafted object. Or Absolutely. even roof line. The roof lines are the giveaway because it's like, why all the flat ribs in a place that gets so much rain? But it's like every new building is just flat roof with that sort of like puffy the cornice, puffy whatever, yeah. It, yeah, sort of a cornice. You know, that's interesting about um, a lot of the neighborhood um, associations <coughs> actually require mm-hmm. that, and a lot of most of the neighborhoods a cornice. Yeah, you actually have to have that. If you don't have a, a pitched roof, if you go with flat roof, you have to do. Like a cornice. But that's like the cheapest cornice you can get, just like a box that goes around. Yeah, or a simple parapet or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the level of craft that goes into it, um, it really depends. I think, in general, um, it seems like the U.S. is, overall, we're less interested in actually paying for design. We don't mm-hmm. really see the value in it. We see the value in, in the budget and, and square footage and, and the square footage. Oh, granite countertops. Granite countertops. That's still a thing, right? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Exactly. Stainless steel appliances, is that still a, a thing? It's got to be. Oh, I'm for sure. Boy, that's yeah. been a thing for like 20 years. Yeah, so you're right, you're right. People care um, about square footage and uh, so unfortunate because, uh, I don't know, I mean, the whole city is starting to just blend into sort of boxiness. I don't know. Um, but I mean, yeah, I... I don't want to piss you off or anything. Um, no, I'm, I'm not. Like I'm, I'm not emotionally attached okay, to, okay. to any. Yeah, I mean, you know. this, yeah. no, but you know, I used to like I when I worked for a design firm. Like, it got to the, we'd worked. It was like kind of like what was happening in Portland, but it was very. I'm saying like a lot. I'm so sorry. And, um, oh, I was gonna say um, you don't actually have to talk into that mic anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, just you don't want to. Cool. Hey. Oh, because he's got that. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Nice. Um. Basically, the real estate thing would be concentrated into one town, and then all the investors wanted to build houses in that town. So every house started, every little crappy house started to get torn are you, down. Uh, are we in a historic context? Is that what you're talking it's about? It's a historic town, for sure. But the okay. buildings that first got torn down weren't historic. They were like, you know, ranch houses from the 1970s. Yeah. But then they ran out of those. So then they started taking down the historic ones, the Victorian farmhouses, and I I was part of that for sure. Like, mm. we did that. But I remember being like, oh, this, I don't know. I don't want to do this. This is, like, not okay. But I didn't have the knowledge at that point to know why. I just knew, like, it felt weird to, like, yeah. tear down a big, beautiful farmhouse for, like... And those were, like, the houses they were building weren't 
apartment buildings like we're doing in Portland. It was more like Mike big mansions that were like on the lot. They took up the whole lot for the most part. Yeah. And they were like Cinderella's suburban home. Is what so I how saying. do you feel about um, like uh, issues of density, you know, um, mm-hmm. related to like sustainability issues and sprawl, urban sprawl? Um, yeah. Something that's really what I think is a positive thing about Portland is the, mm-hmm. the urban boundary line in some ways mm-hmm. with the plus or minuses but um, if a lot of people are living in the cities to have less impact on the natural environment supposedly um, I mean density is uh, it's like a concern it's gonna it's getting harder to preserve these individual homes right um, and there's also the question of housing that's in a deficit in Portland um, so well, I think yeah. I mean, yeah, correct. I'm I'm definitely um, for infill, but it has to be careful infill. Yeah. And so the sense. thing is, is mm-hmm. like they just built a brand new strip mall, one story, on uh, MLK and Fremont. There's no housing there at all. I mean, that that was a five acre lot. Hmm. Another thing is, you go around town. The thing that they're building a lot of is storage unit buildings. So they're tearing down buildings to build giant storage building buildings. There's no housing in there. Another thing I noticed is they build they uh, they build uh, lots of commercial buildings that have absolutely no housing. Hmm. So it's like I kind of feel like where's if there's a housing crisis, why aren't we incorporating housing into almost any property? Back in the day, before the automobile, the main streets were lined with first story commercial and then they would just put apartments on top you know to right. like make extra money mm-hmm. but the thing is is like they're only doing that here in areas that are locally owned and they're taking the local ownership of these small buildings like on alberta or mississippi transferring them to giant corporations that build these massive apartment complexes and so mm. they're they're hyper concentrating where the new units go mm-hmm. and they're still building suburbia and i'm definitely an advocate for taking the neighborhoods that are I would call them incomplete neighborhoods, like where you can't walk, they have bad sidewalks, no lighting. Taking those and like incorporating new development into those, because that's where it actually would be affordable, because it's more affordable in those areas. Mm -hmm. And you could do it in a way where you're not displacing anyone. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the city thinks, no, 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 we're we're just going to concentrate everyone in one spot, and that'll be the best thing. But it's like, they're still going to displace a bunch of people like me, John, people that live here, Mm -hmm. that won't be able to live in a glass cube building. We're going to have to move somewhere. We'll probably either move out of Portland totally or to East Portland. So it's like this whole notion that they're not displacing people by building these high-rise buildings in the old neighborhoods. They are. So it's – and then the thing, too, with that is I think there's two kinds of density. I was thinking about this idea this week because I'm a nerd. (laughs) There's investor density and then there's real density. Hmm. So if you think of this house, right – John lives here with four unrelated people that he lives with. They all live here together because they're young and they have lower incomes and they they share the resource of the house. So there's a basically in the the investor housing would want each one of them to rent a studio apartment from their corporation. Mm-hmm. That would be the goal. That there is no place for you to live except a studio apartment. So each one of them would be paying twelve hundred dollars a month to live in a studio apartment. Wow, that's that's so basically they are building more unit density. But they're really not the city data people and the urban planners. I don't think they're really taking into consideration the the actual density of a neighborhood that is enlivened and enriched by people that 
don't pay tons of money in rent and aren't like we were saying with the doctors oh, mm-hmm. they're actually spending their time in the neighborhoods they're going to the coffee shops they're going to see bands they're mm-hmm. going to the place where you get your beard trimmed and all that stuff and buying the snarky cards at the snarky card shop you know mm-hmm. so i think like what proof of this or one of the things i think is proof is i went over to seattle and i'd never been to ballard have you ever been to ballard Mm-mm. neighborhood and that's a neighborhood that basically they took um they kept the main street, so all the old buildings of the main street are there. But beyond the main street, everything has been eliminated or redeveloped into high-rise apartment—not not high-rise, like five-story apartment buildings. And it just—it just felt like an empty neighborhood. I, did. I mean, there was people around, but it didn't feel like it was lived in. It just kind of felt like a suburb feels, like how people sleep there. But that's kind of it. Mm. So that's my main concern with that. Is like, but I'm totally on board with you. Like, yeah, but places like. Gresham and East Portland and all the suburban areas. I mean, God, they're super low density. And I'm not even saying remove housing there. Like, I'm saying take, mm-hmm. talk to Walmart Corporation and say, hey, Walmart Corporation, you got to be part of the solution of this. We got to start putting some housing in here. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm saying, like, we got to get real innovative. So I think, and I'm, I'm not, I think I understand where the city government's coming from and the development field where you guys are, I'm not saying you guys, but like, they're basically saying within the confines of the system we have, this is what we're going to do. And I understand that totally, but I think the long-term repercussions of that are going to be pretty painful. Sure. Yeah, cool. Sorry for talking so much. Okay. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Fine. See any good movies lately? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got to say your piece. You know? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I could feel your conflict. Don't worry, we have like three people that listen to our podcast. <laughs> no, I just, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no conflict. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, like I was telling John the other day, they're, they're building a new apartment building on Northwest, uh, I think it's 21st, and it is it actually fits in with the old buildings around, and it it's kind of cool looking. And I got I got to say, I was like, huh, that's what mm-hmm. a new apartment building could look like? I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it replaced a building that was probably from the 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. And I know it was like a it was like a popular nightclub. I never went there before. But, you know, there's always that loss of, like, the cultural uh, places you loved. Yeah. And that's hard to justify, but also hard to justify keeping, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Club 21, did you ever go there? No. Oh, man, that was like – I went there all the time. It was just such a cool little place. Hmm. And that got torn down, and I think they, I don't think they built an apartment building on it yet, but they will, and it's going to be a massive one. It's kind of right by the Linden. Oh, uh, okay. Right, and um, over the bridge in East Port, like East Burnside area, East Sandy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a loss because I felt like, oh, why couldn't they keep it and build the apartment building around it? Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of one of those kind of people. Like, you could still make a ton of money, and you can keep all the cool kooky stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question for Matt. Okay, here we yeah. go. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna get closer to the mic. Yeah. Um, this is John, by the way. He's the producer. Okay. Um, Go ahead, John. Hi, mom and dad. Oh, your mom and dad listen to it. Oh yeah. Oh okay. Hi, John's mom and dad. <laughs> um. So, uh, like, what's your real interest in 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 this field, and like, what hmm. would be like a really a good sort of career idea for you, like? In, hmm. Yeah, um, I think I'm looking at um, 
the potential of a multidisciplinary firm or like a like a collaborative working environment. Um, so I feel like as like a little bit of backstory, there's a lot of discourse about the architectural profession right now and um, about how uh, the millennial generation isn't really replacing the retiring generation of architects. So there's supposedly there's a deficit that's that's growing. Um, there's an interesting article I read uh, last week about UCLA, their graduate program in architecture. Eighty percent of their graduate students aren't actually going into the field. They they got jobs for with like Amazon or Google. For architecture? Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. And they were they were graduates and UCLA placed in like the top ten of best schools in the US um, or whatever, but majority of them aren't actually seeking architecture. And then there's like hmm. there's like fifteen percent of them that don't know what they're gonna do, and then like five percent are they have a job lined up in architecture. Um, and a lot of that is is tied to the the discourse right now about the field that um, that school costs a lot of money and the jobs don't really pay that. And yeah, that's a huge, huge thing. So there's this huge conversation about it, and then it's also like um, who is actually making the buildings these days? In a lot of cases, it's not really the architects; it's developers or the engineers or whoever can fund the project and then they find an architect to stamp the plans and so well that's been the story forever for a long time yeah like if you look at um we kind of are exiting an era it seems where developers wanted to have a architectural name attached to it Mm -hmm. it does feel like that's going away because of because the buildings are just so generic and so it's like to me it feels like we're on the Pacific Rim, and it seems like we're becoming more how Asia does their buildings, where they kind of just build a bunch of buildings. Hmm. I'm not saying they don't have like their their Helmut Hahn buildings and or their name a famous guy. You know, their who's yeah. the famous guy with the crumpled paper? Frank Gehry. <laughs> Frank Gehry. Yeah. Like every city's got to have one of those, right? But I don't sure. know. It seems like that era of the architect as this like force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And this vision that used to be even a local kind of thing. Like even when I was working at a little architecture firm, I was like, "We got to be the architecture firm that like we have a stamp." And there was like other architects locally that were, had their own little style, mm-hmm. and they were kind of known like, "Oh, that's the high end guy." Oh, that's the. But most of architecture is okay. We need this box. Somebody needs to stamp it to yeah. get the approval. I mean, but not for but for large buildings that was never the case. And now I feel like large buildings. These new buildings are getting built so quickly, it's, like, amazing. So these new buildings, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of what you're talking about, and there's, like, a formula. There's, like, these little algorithms yeah. that are being put together right, that, right. that people know can produce a building that is marketable in the least amount of time possible. And so that's... Mm-hmm. For that's a duration. For, for now. Or, I mean, this yeah. That, yeah, my big problem with architecture, it's not, like, fashion. It's not, like... H&M, when it goes out of fashion, you just throw it out or give it away. It's like when you build a building that goes out of style, you're stuck. Like in the whole yeah. idea that we're going to just constantly be tearing down buildings and rebuilding new ones, mm-hmm. I don't think that's really going to happen. I think that's so much money to do that. I think this might be just a short-term blip of prosperity and then because it happened in the past, you know, like where 
they built these buildings thinking, oh, we'll just like throw them away and remove them, and then you're stuck with them for 50 years, and then they're hard to manage, they're hard to yeah. pay for, they're hard to uh, police, they're all, you know all the different right. repercussions. But that's interesting you say that because I felt that too about school. It's just so expensive. Why would you want to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get a fifty thousand dollar year job or? Right. Like, if you're going to do that, go to software engineering school, you know? Yeah, exactly. Get the three-year program, two-year program in that. So, yeah. Um, the path I've been taking is to try to stay out of debt for as long as possible and so yeah. that I can try to try to have more decision on where my career goes, hopefully. Um, Good. That's great. So, um, but ideally, um, ideally for me, that would... I'm not like so romantically tied to just architecture itself, more as like design as a whole and like the creative process in general. And so um, I'm more interested in um, like doing buildings, but being open to doing installations and product design and um, and also software design and um, UX design and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Looking for more um, more of a cross disciplinary approach. Um, and so basically that would mean that what I could bring to the table is an architectural background, architectural mm-hmm. training. And so I'll just have a, a sort of a notion of how the design process works. And that's just something that I can hopefully bring to the table. You know, it's like a, like a background thing. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's what I would like to do, um, in Portland. And I'd like to work next to, um, work next to the artist and the graphic designer and the chef and amen i think that's the future to be honest i think that all of the job positions that have been pigeonholed in the 20th century Mm -hmm. we're going to have to like either get rid of those positions because computers are just going to be doing so much of it that i know this this sounds i i don't know if it's going to happen but it needs to happen the artists need to be in charge of the ideas yeah, and then the artists say, "Okay, this is the vision," and then all the people that—that's sort of a different way to organize space and time. Mm-hmm. Is like if you have this beautiful vision, and then the engineering and the algorithms kind of go towards that, right? As opposed to like, oh, you're just an artist. Like, okay, we don't take you that seriously. We will, you know, you can't afford to live here because you're poor. Like, get out of here. So, but it's like you can see if a city does that. Mm-hmm. They're really shooting themselves in the foot because I think yeah. um, innovation and the whole uh, tech, it always has to be next to artists, I think. I think that's why San Francisco was such a vital place because it was like there was the buzz of the art moves there, right? All the stuff that was coming out of mm-hmm. San Francisco, the city. And so the suburban area was like the tech. Right. It all makes sense like if you look at it like that. Um, and yeah. yeah, I think that's smart. So do you have to go to grad school to become an architect now or – um, you need at least a five-year degree yeah. from uh, an accredited university, or you do a four plus two or a four plus three, which means uh, two years of two or three years of graduate school on top of a bachelor's. Mm-hmm. Is that what you want to do? Yeah, yeah that's what I'm working towards. Are you going to stay at PSU or just? Um, I'm actually hoping to go to Europe and and do school in oh, Europe. Yeah. Sounds, oh, dude, that's awesome, man. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. Um, yeah, it's. I think you're kind of tapping into this. Um, we're, we're seeing, like, or the zeitgeist right now with technology is that mm-hmm. automation, uh, especially with um, neural network um, development and AI and, and tech, 
um, automation of of things is becoming, or just like the the field of automation is growing really fast, rapidly, and we're we're seeing um, technology that can do things before that, or technology that can imitate human behavior in ways that it hasn't before. So I think. Um, for me, I'm, I'm seeing this as like, yeah, in, in my near future, in our near future, we're, there's going to be a lot of jobs being displaced, right, by by computers. It's becoming like more and more right? viable. Yeah. And uh, and so, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you have some thoughts on this, but at like, if I try to envision what the end point is of this, um, maybe it's a like a, a convergence of, you know, the human and the robot, which is what some people believe, but... Um, I think that the artistic process as a human is still very, very unique. And, and even if computers can imitate it in a certain way, um, there's still the, the freedom of being a human and being able to change and explore and try things so rapidly. Uh, I have a hard time believing that that will be um, replaced so soon. And so, mm-hmm. kind of tying into what you're saying, like the the artist, if that's something that can really set us apart still from automation, um, that seems really oh, important yeah. to me. Right? I mean, I mean, I feel like when I think of Portland in a global context, like I feel like with globalism, what what's happening is that everywhere is kind of becoming like everywhere else, mm-hmm. and all the s- different cities are being affected by it. But to me, I'm like, oh, the secret to globalism is to be as local as you can get, because then you're differentiating your place in a global. You're differentiating yourself in a global marketplace. So if Portland tears down all its buildings and makes buildings that look just like the ones in Hong Kong or just like the ones in Shanghai, because mm-hmm. that's the cheapest, quickest way to make housing, boy, right. why would you now? You know what I mean? It's why sort of like yeah, because everybody in the world is gonna. I mean, we're all we're so hungry for novelty, meaning. Something new, something fresh, something. That makes me think you know, of um, of Cuba's situation. Yes, um, they're in a perfect situation now. It's, it's interesting <laughs> if to you think, think about it. They had the uh, the embargo, and so they yeah. they had to learn how to completely rely on themselves for agriculture and jobs. Yeah. Twenty years later, it's like, wow, this place turned into a little oasis. They have all their old buildings. They have all their old buildings. I mean, that's amazing. And they have old cars. They missed out on all of the crappy modern... Well, they probably have some crappy modernism buildings from their their Soviet era, but all of the hyper-consumerism stuff of, like, suburban sprawl, that's just not there. Yeah. So that's such an opportunity. Now... Can they withstand? See, I think what's going to help you, what you have to have against the global current wave of just destruction, redevelopment, is you have to have smart local stuff in place that says, okay, we know what our vision is. And I think that's where the artists come in. It's like mm-hmm. the artists and the creative people are the ones that can see the future. You know, I think right. Steve Jobs was why he was so successful and why they were so successful was he was he married those two things. He didn't say, oh, artists, whatever paint me a picture of a flower i don't care it's like he was like no art is the way that you make the product it has to be artful Mm -hmm. and the fact that everybody loves those products because they're beautiful that's the proof Mm -hmm. you know in my own head um i was talking to an architect who he that was flies all over the world and he was saying that he was like well pretty soon it, it could be algorithms that just design all these buildings because they're all you know 
yeah, pretty formulaic. And I'm like, well, that is kind of true. I mean, you know, but uh, you know, even when I was dressman ten years ago, like we kept thinking then like it was about outsourcing. It was like, well, gosh, why couldn't you hire somebody in India to draft this thing for a dollar an hour or two dollars an hour when you're paying somebody fifteen here? Right. But that didn't really pan out. It seemed like yeah, I didn't outsource too much. Well, I don't know. But I mean, I think buildings times, buildings will can be automated to a certain degree already, and that's going to improve. But will they ever be able to make like a, a architecture school of Macintosh, for example, like in Scotland, the the Glasgow School of Art? Are you familiar with that building? Oh yeah, 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 totally. Um, so. So Macintosh was a arts and crafts era, so like 1800, late, help me out here. Yeah. 1900s, 1800s? Late 1800s, yeah. And he had a whole, the whole, they were responding to the industrial revolution of everything being sort of cheap and not one of a kind. Right, kind of so that's what, what we're going through now on a, on a different scale. Yeah. But, um, so the arts and crafts movement was really interested in craft as a as part of the creative process, but also as a... Like it having an intrinsic higher meaning to it, right? Like mm-hmm. The craftsmanship down to the detail is what was valued, and so this building that Macintosh did, um, which uh, actually burnt down for the second time uh, two weeks ago, I found oh, out. Oh no! Shoot! So it burnt down in uh, 2014, and they spent like three years oh, repairing no. it, like exactly. Why does it keep burning down? And then it burnt down again, but. Um, <laughs> uh, because you're like, we don't have electricity. We keep candles for authenticity. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right. Who knows? But uh, I brought that up as, as an example of um, something that, that seems hard to automate. Like, how do you automate a, a one-time, a one-off? How do you automate a, a one-time creation? Like, my limited experience with uh, computer programming is that it's very easy to automate something when the task is very generic, mm-hmm. right? When you can, when there's very few amount of rules and very few conditions, it's very easy to automate it. And so over time, you can add those many conditions. But each time that you want to add one extra particular nuance to something, it's it's almost rewriting the program sometimes, or it's right. That's adding another yeah. level of complexity. So the more, I don't know, maybe the more um, interested in craft and the minutia detail um, or the one-offs, so to speak, that we can get into, the, the further we separate from automation. Uh, I, I mean, in a way, in a way... Yeah, what, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying for sure. It seems like there's always uh, movements like that. But they never take hold internationally because one-off things are local. And they're expensive. Which, um, and, they're and, local. and they're expensive. Yeah. But what I think is really cool is, like, having lived through the past 10 years in this town, you know, you were living here too. So, like, that was the worst economy ever. Like, I didn't know anybody that had a decent job, really. Mm-hmm. Everybody – and I had, like, four part-time jobs, and that was kind of a, a funny Portland thing. Right. But that was true. And it was, like – but then what you really found was all of this, like, local innovation. You know, like, there would be, like, the guy that redid read, – all the hipster stuff that people make fun of mm-hmm. was actually really, really innovative e- economics. Mm-hmm. People were like, well, if I can't really find a job in whatever I went to school for, I'll, I like beer, so I'll make beer. And then, then they start making beer. Mm-hmm. And then the guy that did Pock Pock, I don't know what his backstory is, but 
or you know like all the bicycle shops and all those things were like the, this local response to like just being kind of poor but yeah. also being eager and excited about life and excited about learning and also uh embracing the sacredness of being artful you know yeah and i feel like that totally gets made fun of and brushed aside but it's like Super that valuable. might be the secret because mm-hmm. yeah if all this automation happens like if all the uber i mean now you see people move here they could just do uber to like survive but i'm like what happens when it's all automated cars like you can't just yeah. how's that gonna work i don't know but that's that's down the road a bit it's crazy but, yeah but it does make me think that and yeah like like when i do see the architecture i'm like oh i, I see how the the software is really it seems like it's almost running the show um but yeah what, what do you think about ecology so i used to think that the future of design is ecology Hmm. Like, that there's uh, going to be no style in the future. It'll just be like, well, what does it do for the environment? What kind of, what does it produce? And like biomimicry kind of thing? Yeah, like or? that. The thing that would dictate, like, form follows function, it would be more like, you know, ecosystem uh, yeah, I think dictates that, function or something. That it would be. I think, um, you know. like, the um, um, uh, sustainable archi- uh, permaculture permaculture scene um i've always been really interested in the the stuff going on in new mexico like the um the airships is that what they're called earthships Earthships. oh my god i love that you know who that that is yeah i love those Um, too i think that's a those are fantastic examples of of the attempt to make the building part of an ecosystem be tell tell a little bit about what you know about what it is so the, the earthships are are houses or they're like settlements, groups of houses that are built using reclaimed or salvaged materials, mostly like tires, right? Like tires and rammed earth and dirt and mm-hmm. um, grass, like on the roof, like sod or um, scrap parts, um, and then taking advantage of um, of the high desert climate, also so lots of sunshine and good opportunities for um, passive solar design. So. Um, so they have a lot of benefit of their of their climate, also to to help that out. But so this um, so the Earthship has this concept of making something with what's already there and available and it's affordable, and incorporating the made thing into a life system or a life cycle. So it's it's about not just providing shelter for the inhabitants, but it's also about how the building can provide their water and how it can clean their water and how mm-hmm. it can provide their food and how that all circulates. So, um, like an example of, um, like a water system, potential water system in an earth ship would gather the water from the rain. And then the first stage, it, uh, might be potable, might not usually not, but say best case scenario, they can drink it. Um, then the next level would be for um, like washing dishes. So they recycle the the used water, and then um, they can wash dishes with it. And then the next level would be like they can they can run their flush their toilets with it. And then the next level is they can water their plants with it. And then once it's in the once it's in the garden, the garden can filter it and make it suitable for the fish. So they have a fish pond with tilapia, and then the fish. Or like the last stage that that eats the the algae and the particulates that have gathered in the water during this whole cycle, and then 
So it's looking at like... And then you eat the fish. And then you eat the fish, exactly. So, so do, you, like, do you think yeah. that this is possible to do in a corporate global system? Because uh, I've noticed, I mean, and it's true, like when I read about the new buildings and stuff, it's like, you know, I mean, of course we'd all like them to have green roofs, or, or actually Daniel, your roommate, was mentioning, why aren't these new buildings creating places for people that live in the neighborhoods so they can go up on the roof and have gardens? Yeah. But it's all so expensive that they just lop off all of that, all of those little things like solar and The green roof is, is a little bit of a, um, um, uh, what's the term when you... Um, well, when you when you buy something for the sake of showing that you can purchase it, um, oh, conspicuous consumption. Conspicuous consumption. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of a little bit of that because it's it's um, it's flashy. It's flashy. It's new design. It also it definitely does have its ecological benefits, especially um, on the urban scale. If you don't have the um, heat island effect, heat sure. island that's effect. Portland's sure. going to have that now that they're tearing down all the trees. That's going to be a big problem in the future for sure. And uh, maybe for stormwater and like avoiding the stormwater going through like nasty asphalt mm-hmm. shingles and that sort of thing. So yeah. there, there definitely is a benefit, but not as much as the as there could be. And um, so you don't. I think a lot. It's of not a lot of bang for your buck, is what you're saying. Right, right now, yeah. but I think in general. Like historically, that sort of the sort of movement, like the concept of the people becoming self-sustaining, has always been shut down like really fast. Um, someone, uh, a friend of mine, was telling me about uh, New York City, like after World War II, that there was this um, this huge boom of community gardens that was happening, mm, and mm-hmm. then I guess there was an ordinance that responded to that and said that. Like they started regulating the amount of community gardens that people could have because it was creating a, a community space where people could go and grow their food, but also they could go and organize and um, and talk about their issues and get to know their neighbors. And so, <laughs> yeah. um, it's dangerous, actually, dangerous stuff. Yeah, for the for the industrial world, it's it's dangerous. Um, and I think we see a lot of examples of that in our cities. Um, that we don't really have a lot of collective areas. Communitexture talks a lot about this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and um, a friend of mine from Ireland, I was, he loves Portland, and I was driving him around to kind of, you know, showing him what's going on. And he's like, yeah, you know, they're trying to separate all of us so that we're all just in our little boxes with our devices and, you yeah. know, and we're not really meeting each other too much. Isolation and you know. dependency on on really easy shopping, like Amazon. Yeah, bought at Whole Foods, so I mean, God, I can just have my food sent to my door, and I never have to go oh, to the yeah. grocery store. Oh, right? dude, that's gonna that's already happening, but it, it'll be affordable in a certain sense soon. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I I I criticize it, but I do it too. Like after work, like when I'm done, I just go home, and I might be on the laptop like the whole entire time until I go to bed. Yeah. You know, like listening to music or doing whatever, but like... Do you think that makes it harder? Um, do you think overall that that makes it harder for people to, like, get to know each other? Or Yeah, or I, think it, like I think it leads to depression and antisocial behavior. I think it's all kinds of horrible things. I think the world we're living in is becoming this cartoon of what a human being's life should be, and I think that's one of the reasons why, for sure. Yeah, We're all getting so distrustful and we're we're it's funhouse mirror for everything because because the internet is kind of this crazy brain uh-huh. that it, it's sort of like a mentally ill brain 
Mm-hmm. And so if you tap into the the sick parts of it, you think the world is this it, this this horrible place or whatever. I mean, luckily my job is my job is to talk to people all day. So I'm meeting people and I'm like, God, like 98% of people are totally awesome. Like you'd go out for a beer with them. You know? Yeah. I mean, I do work at a nature center, so I'm meeting nature people. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know? But uh, but still, like they're strangers. You mm-hmm. know. So it's like I think it's super dangerous. But I think also. People will just have to make appointments, you know, like this, like for example, right now, where, where you made an appointment to like meet a human being and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be more like that. It'll be more, more like, oh, I have to go to my conversation club. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but I totally that, that think it's going to be like that. Yeah. I mean, I seek that out because uh, if I work on a computer all day, I know that to stay healthy, I need to have some sort of social interaction. And so... I'll have that designated place that I go to. After work? Yeah, to get that, which might be like a rock bar. climbing or oh, okay. a bar. Oh, okay. Or no, you're healthier. But rock climbing's a healthy choice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it would be nice to have, um, like if it was my kitchen, if the place where my food, where I got my food and made it was also where everyone else in the neighborhood was doing that, mm-hmm. that would be like a beautiful opportunity for me to get to know my neighbors, right? And to build trust yeah, between us. Yeah. Also probably learn to hate a few of them. Oh my God. I think so so John and I lived at Milepost 5, you know about that? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I so that was that. like that on a very large scale. And that yeah. was what I think was the problem is each floor had 80 units. Is that right? And one kitchen. So it was like, hmm. but the wonderful part about it was, yeah, you're meeting people all day long and you have this like secondary family that you could just tap into. The problem is so many people had problems that just like it would take all your time and you like couldn't get yourself out of the social mode. Mm. So there's a balance, you know, but yeah, I think it was just that it was too big. Like yeah, smaller tribes. Yeah. Like I thought you could share a kitchen with maybe 10 people. They were kind of small <laughs> you know? kitchens for the, the amount of people using them. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, and then because then it was, there was always a group of people that, like, didn't respect and didn't want to really be there. They were just there because it was cheap. Mm-hmm. And they would, like, make a big mess and not clean it up. And it was like, you can't not clean up right away. You're not, like, saying, oh, I can clean it later, at, like, at home. No, you can't do that because mm-hmm. there's too many people depending on it. Um, yeah, but exactly. I think that will start. It's going to have to happen because otherwise we're going to become, like, I don't want to say the word crazy, but, like, we're just going to become more and more and more dysfunctional as a society, I, don't you think? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the idea just sounds sad to me, but I might be a little bit more extroverted on the um, on the spectrum, and so maybe I need that more. But um, No, I mean, I noticed when I was a draftsman, I would, I would just get lost in my own head. Mm. And I think outside of work, I would, like, socialized a bunch mm-hmm. but the place I worked was where I don't know it was hard to explain but it was an interesting place so I had lots of socializing opportunities nearby mm. but um, yeah I think when people have isolated jobs the part of their brain that knows how to talk to people doesn't get used so it's just they're not that good at it yeah it definitely takes practice it does right? <laughs> for sure it takes exposure and yeah, yeah it really does mm-hmm and it's a lifelong thing. Like, it isn't like you take a course on how to meet people. But okay, tell me about this. So you've been here ten years. Now, what I really liked about Portland when I moved here was like you could c- almost be anywhere, and people would talk to you and have a conversation. Like there mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why I thought the bar scene here was so alive and interesting. It's because you go to any bar and you just kind of end up merging groups and talking to people. And they were always doing interesting things. It was like I met so many interesting people. Mm. Do you feel like that's getting different? Oh, yeah. I I feel like um, just the neighborhood I live in. Where do you live? I live on um, uh, East Burnside. Oh, like Laurelhurst-ish. Yeah, there. like okay. that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And, um, like, people are, are friendly, but, like, maybe, like, 10% of the people I walk by on a sidewalk will actually pay a little, pay a little bit of time to, like, recognize me as a human, and mm. even a smaller amount would actually say hi or good morning or something. Um, and so I think, I think that's strange, I feel like that's really strange to me. Um, to not have somebody say hi to you? Yeah, or to have zero, um, like, need to. Not that I need to, like, say hi to people, but I don't know the neighbors. I don't know the people across the street. And I don't, I live there. I've been there about a year, which isn't super long, but um, I don't really feel like I'm a part of the neighborhood at all, mm. you know? Um I visited uh, some family in Southern Oregon recently, and I used to think of Southern Oregon in the same way. But when I go back there, like it's actually better. It's a little better. Like you can park your car in the parking lot, and people might say, "Hey, good morning. I like the the waxing job you did on your car. It looks great." You know, yeah, something small like that. Or um, they might be interested in like your dog, and they might. Well, actually, people here are interested about dogs. Do- that dogs might be are the, the link. That might be the <laughs> that saving <laughs> grace that, that we have here. So. That's true. That's a good conversation starter. Dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think I think it, it, the isolation has probably grown a little bit. Um, so, how do you think architecture can help with that? I think we need to have more community spaces that are meaningful and that aren't um, taken advantage of to uh, get money from a particular demographic. Yeah, you know, we need places that are hangout spaces I know along that, in yeah. a busy um, high transit area, like a, a place where people walk and cars stop and people are forced to just sort of be there for a moment. But then maybe there's something enticing there and that keeps them there for a bit. Like maybe the weather's nice there. Maybe there's sunshine. Maybe there is mm-hmm. a nice water feature. We have, we have a couple of spots, but like Director's Park, for example. Yeah, I used I to think, work there. I think that's a, a that's beautiful a great park. park. Great, great park. It's wonderful. That part of town caters to a little bit more of uh, more bourgeois part of town, I think, or um, working well it, off it, it working has, class in Portland, but yeah, there's also a good mix of of uh, of the street culture and it's the time of day too. It changes, which is really cool. And the time of the day, but I, th- I think it's a beautiful example of a place where people are enticed to sometimes just go there, but also just stop and and stay there for a bit. And it's right on the Max Line, and there are places to get you know food, but you're not required to get food to sit there. So if I go there and I sit, I don't feel compelled to go get a drink just to fit in or to feel like I can stay there without being harassed or something. Yeah. Um, but 
so yeah, there's like reasons to stay, but they did a beautiful job of also designing it for different age groups because there's the water fountain, yeah, so kids, kids love, love going there, mm-hmm. and family can hang out on the edge and kind of mingle with each other while they watch the kids in a safe spot. But there's also like the the check um, the chessboard, and mm-hmm. that's that's an interesting spot to start to mix like older generation with younger generation even. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's like this big, fun chessboard. So, of course, uh, my 12-year-old self would love just moving the pieces around. Like, that's fun enough, but it's also a chess game. So you can have you can have older people, you can have intellectuals, you can have a huge range of people, right, just sitting oh, there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It always was. So I think we need more of those spaces, but on different scales. I mean, that, that space was designed by a by an affluent landscaping firm and had a huge budget, so we can't really get that. But to achieve what they were targeting, which I think was um, reasons to sit and just be outside and not feel weird about it in a space, um, in a high-traffic area, I think that's something architecture could try to do. Um, yeah, for sure. There is. Are you? Um, so I live by this building called the Civic. It's a high-rise building. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with it, used to be a, there used to be a dollar store on it. Hmm. It's on Burnside and West 18th, 19th. Okay. But the interesting thing is, it has this little area between the two buildings, uh-huh. and it is like never used. Hmm. And I'm always like looking at it because it's nice. It's like a decent spot. Yeah. But I never hang out there either. Huh. And one of the main things I've noticed is like it is always in shadow. Uh, so yeah. it's like that just killed it right there. Right. So it's like that's that's a science right there too. So you have you heard of the book? I always plug this book, but it's the best ever. The pattern language, a pattern language. Of course, yeah. Okay, good, mm-hmm. dude. Yeah. So that book really helped me a lot to understand this stuff. To be like, oh, it's it's a science. It's not just like the visionary architect thinks of something and it works out perfectly. It's like you have got to look at human behavior and then design accordingly. Right. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, and the fact that Director Park is kitty corner to Pioneer Square and they're both heavily used. Yeah. That tells me that humans like to have all kinds of different areas nearby that they can mix it up. They'll yeah. go to this place one day, they'll go to this place the other day. So neighborhoods like There's the one you live in, there bit. could probably yeah. be the same with bars, right? There's like 10 different bars probably right by your house that you probably go to a few of them mm-hmm. and you mix it up. Yeah. And then a public space would be the same way. And it could be a micro little space, it could be a big space like Laurelhurst Park. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a variety, yeah. Of, a variety of spaces and conveniently placed in the middle of my daily routine. You mm-hmm. know, that, that kind of forces people to to end up there. Um, we need places where things can happen. Yeah. And that's what I feel like we're losing, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, on that note, um, anything else that you'd like to uh, express or talk about? or? Um, no. Okay. Are you happy with our conversation? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I'm really happy to meet you. Mm-hmm. And I think we did good in meeting where we're meeting and... And I think uh, you have a great mind for these things. And oh, I really appreciate you. you being here. Yeah. And I hope we can do it again. Great. Of course. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. All right. And everybody out there, remember, <laughs> if you don't love your city, who will? Thank you, good people of the world, for listening to the City Love Podcast today. We look forward to you listening to the next episode. Producer, John Thompson and Patrick Hilton. All music by Beluga. And remember... 
if you don't love your city, 